Fifty years ago this year, the Black Moratorium marches, held on the 14th of July 1972, saw thousands take to the streets across the country in the largest demonstrations in support of Aboriginal rights held up to that time. A leaflet authorised by Aboriginal activist Gary Foley in Sydney to promote the moratorium called for tens of thousands to stop work and march on the streets of Sydney to support the struggles of Aborigines against racism and oppression. And in Sydney, thousands of building workers, ship painters and dockers, teachers and other unionists responded to the call and took a half-day strike to attend. Today, I'm speaking to Bob Mackinson, who was involved in organising meetings in Sydney as a high school student to help organise the moratorium. This is James Supple, and you're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, a podcast produced by the revolutionary socialist group Solidarity. I'm recording this episode today on the land of the Gadigal people in Sydney. Thanks for joining us, Bob. So I'd like to start with some of the context. The moratorium marches in 1972 followed a period of major struggles around the Vietnam War, the beginnings of the women's liberation movement, uh, as well as important trade union struggles. Uh, Could you talk a bit about how that context fed into the Black Moratorium itself? Those background issues meant that um, uh, left and progressive sections of society in Australia were largely mobilised, including um, at an electoral level, but also at a mass mobilisation level, to some extent industrially, but especially in terms of uh, public street protests of one sort or another. uh, A certain barrier uh, had been crossed, if you like, um, where that became a popular form of expression for uh, a range of issues. Uh, Vietnam was certainly important and it meant that there were very large numbers of people um, mobilised around that issue and were used to and comfortable with the demonstration format. The industrial situation as it had developed and the uh, uh, mobilisation of of Labor Party elements uh, towards an election victory, which didn't come until 1972, meant that there was a receptivity in the industrial area and trade union area to... um, uh, social issues that uh, had been perhaps more restricted previously. Uh, but in particular, um, there was a um, an event the year before the Black Morris Forum, which was the um, uh, the tour of the South African Springboks rugby team. South Africa, of course, at that time was an apartheid state, very repressive, neo-fascist in many ways. Uh, and uh, there'd been a large mobilisation against that rugby tour in several cities around Australia, uh, which had, again, helped to forge um, an effective alliance um, uh, across all sorts of boundaries uh, between people who simply didn't want anything to do with that apartheid state. The focus on uh, an anti-racism theme in that Springboks tour uh, response meant that there was an awareness of of just how bad the South African situation was. But Aboriginal activists uh, towards the end of the Springbok tour were able to turn that on its head to some extent and say, it's all very well to be protesting about uh, what's happening in South Africa, but have you looked at what's happening in Australia? And they laid out some of the reality of that for for people at at different meetings and in different forums. And uh, quite a number of people took notice of that. And it was in the following... Uh, six to 12 months, uh, that a lot of activity started to occur around uh, solidarity with Aboriginal demands as they were at that time. Yeah, and of course, uh, earlier in 1972 as well, another event we've uh, just celebrated the 15th anniversary of was the establishment of the Aboriginal 10 Embassy 
um, in Canberra just after Invasion Day. Uh, was that event something that also fed into the Black Moratorium and something people were aware of? It was hugely important and in many ways, I think, uh, in terms of the, the long-term history of the Aboriginal struggle, it was more important than the Black Moratorium demonstration itself, as were a number of other developments that have been going on, including the foundation of the Aboriginal Medical Service, the Aboriginal Legal Service, uh, the uh, Breakfast for Kids programs. A group of uh, radical, mostly young uh, Aboriginal activists, largely in Sydney, but also in Brisbane and, and a few other places, uh, had been uh, looking very carefully at the program of the Black Panthers in the United States, not just the explicitly political actions undertaken by the Panthers, but also the community-level organising um, and uh, the, the medical service and the legal service and the Breakfast for Kids program owed a lot to that. The establishment of the embassy uh, in early, very early in uh, 1971, sorry, 72, was a direct response to a statement by the Liberal government of the day, the Prime Minister Billy McMahon, uh, that um, effectively meant that uh, the Commonwealth Government was declaring that it would never consider uh, land rights uh, for Aboriginal people. Uh, it would consider various other forms of, of leasing arrangements and things of that sort, but not land rights as such. And in a quite brilliant stroke overnight, that, that statement was issued on January 25th, the day before Australia Day, which, um, or Invasion Day as we now call it, uh, which of course was a, a bit of an insult in its own right. And a, um, a small group of uh, Aboriginal activists um, uh, seized on that and within 24 hours had got themselves to Canberra, uh, set up the, uh, the tent embassy initially under a beach umbrella, uh, and that was a galvanising uh, thing. It, would, it made news not simply around Australia, but internationally as well, because it was an assertion of um, uh, Indigenous uh, sovereignty and, and claiming back that tiny square of land, if you like, um, ahead of uh, any formal land rights that might occur. And it was an assertion of land rights as a central issue. Following the 1967 referendum, which had focused on a single constitutional reform, uh, which um, theoretically made uh, for um, greater civil rights, the land rights issue had gradually becoming, become more important, which was why the coalition government of the day issued that, um, that statement. Uh, but it was the tent embassy that really galvanised things. And in many ways, the Black Moratorium was an expression of a fairly broad social alliance uh, in support of the tent embassy and in support of the land rights um, uh, agenda, which was fairly new at that time. Yeah. And coming to the uh, the moratorium um, itself, so I understand you were personally involved in the, the march and some of the organising. I was wondering if you could um, tell us a little bit about your memories about how the uh, the demonstration was sort of organised and built and, and how it kind of went ahead on the day itself. Yeah, I was um, a high school activist at the time. I'd been involved in uh, various Vietnam um, activities and um, in the Springboks uh, uh, demonstrations. But I will qualify my answer by saying because I was a high school activist, my perspectives at the time were pretty naive and, and pretty limited as to what was going on both within the organising meetings and outside. But I went to the organising meetings for about five or six months um, in Sydney. And my knowledge of what happened in the other centres is, is very second-hand or third-hand. 
I think I was the only high school student uh, in the room most of the time in Sydney. Uh, I did endeavour to bring a few others along, but um, uh, I was the only regular high school attendee. So my perspectives are from that point of view. Essentially, the uh, the meetings which were held in the old Boilermakers Hall up in Castle Ray Street in the Sydney CBD uh, were a, uh, I think it was a fortnightly uh, opportunity for people to come together and report on progress, much of which happened outside those meetings, of course, as it always does with organising events of this sort. So again, my, my knowledge of, of exactly how much organising was going on outside uh, of that, that forum um, is limited, but there's no doubt there was a lot. The uh, A number of um, uh, people in the uh, what had been the anti-apartheid movement that had organised the Springboks actions the year before were exerting their networks uh, to spread word about the planned demonstration and what it was about. Um, various trade unions uh, were coming on board, not necessarily represented in those central meetings, as always, there's a problem with centralised city meetings in that um, uh, many people uh, can't make it to those. There's, there's uh, an old trope about um, things are done by the people who turn up, but they're also done by the people who can't turn up to a central event and who are organising autonomously elsewhere. My impression at the time and since is that the networks that were created by both within the Aboriginal community and, and the non-Aboriginal community that were created by the people who were coming together in those central meetings um, were supplemented or even exceeded by uh, what was going on elsewhere so that you had Communist Party uh, activists, um, including Dennis Freeney, who chaired most of those meetings. He'd been asked to do so uh, by, the, by the Aboriginal participants. The Communist Party was able to um, call on a lot of union support for the demonstration. Uh, sympathetic AL ALP members were able to do likewise, uh, and there was a, uh, a certain unity there, but people regarded it as well above party politics. Um, and you had uh, networks, of course, through the universities, largely built through Vietnam and the Springboks, and we even had some networks in the high school area, although continuity of those, of course, was always a problem with people leaving school every year. So um, the churches were important as well. Uh, you had that usual constellation of, of uh, interests at the time. It certainly was not a left-only uh, event, um, and there was uh, quite broad participation from people who were not uh, of the left necessarily. Many of those had come in the previous year around the Springbox actions uh, because they're discussed with the South African situation, and they had understood the call to bring the anti-racist struggle back home. Getting on to the idea of the moratorium itself, obviously there were several moratorium marches against the, uh, the war in Vietnam in the years leading up to 1972. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what was the significance of using the term moratorium uh, and what that um, you know, meant in terms of uh, trade union participation and what, what kind of march um, was a moratorium as opposed to any other protests, perhaps? Yeah, moratorium was a peculiar term, which I, I think um, uh, nobody was terribly familiar with it at the time that it was first coined in the uh, United States uh, for um, a series of uh, anti-Vietnam war demonstrations in 96, starting in 1969. Uh, it was a direct import to Australia from those American uh, demonstrations and applied from 1970 onwards to a number of uh, major anti-Vietnam war mobilisations here. 
but nobody knew what the hell a moratorium was outside uh, people in the, um, the tax accountancy area where it's a, a technical term that's applied. But basically a moratorium means a, a, a stay, a, a stoppage temporarily of activity in a certain area. And what it was about was uh, stopping normal civic and uh, commercial activity in order to stop the war in Vietnam. Because those demonstrations mobilised so many people, people became familiar with the the, uh, the term, even if they didn't uh, necessarily have to understand the, the technical meaning of it. And uh, in our usual sort of copycat kind of way, it became applied also to the Black Moratorium. It was a way of uh, ringing a bell with many people who'd been involved in the anti-Vietnam struggle, if you like. Well, I guess in terms of the Vietnam War, one of the, the slogans used was um, stop work to stop the war. Like, was there um, significant union sort of stop work action involved in the Black Moratorium as well? Look, my memories of that are hazy. And um, as I said earlier, much of the organising activity uh, occurred outside those meetings. So it wasn't always um, a matter of what was planned in the meetings happening. Um, my recollection is that a number of building sites did stop. Uh, I'm not sure about other areas, but certainly there was a major trade union presence uh, on the day, uh, not necessarily always identified as such, but uh, it was there. And if you look at uh, photos or talk to people reminiscing about the time, uh, it was clear that the organising group had managed to get a lot of material either into trade union newsletters or into on-site meetings prior to the event to, uh, to help bring trade unions on board. We've got to remember that this was back in the day, the Stone Age, when uh, uh, electronic media didn't exist. If you wanted to get word out, you had to do it in person, either by going to a worksite or a school or, or whatever it might be and talking to people, or via printed material. All of that took time, uh, but it did mean, a, in some ways, a depth of uh, engagement, uh, perhaps, that we, uh, we lack today quite often. I mean, looking back, um, and even at the time, like, what do you think the the Black Moratorium marches, and I guess the Aboriginal stru rights struggles more broadly of that period um, achieved? Like looking back fifty years on, you gotta you gotta admire the um, the extraordinary breadth of conception that uh, existed among the Black and White activists uh, who were working on this at the time. Uh, particularly uh, what's often called the Redfin Group, although it included people in other centres and, and um, uh, not necessarily part of the uh, the Black Power Group uh, self-identified that existed in Redfin at the time. But basically they, within uh, a matter of months, mapped out an agenda for uh, both asserting Aboriginal voice and control of um, uh, the development of solidarity activity of uh, pursuing political objectives, including the land rights objective, and getting that onto the national political agenda in a way that it simply hadn't been previously. Uh, and at the same time, these same people um, were doing extraordinary work uh, in the, um, at least in the um, Sydney and Brisbane uh, urban communities in building services like the legal service and the medical service or at least creating the conditions for it, and also networking with uh, people on what was still then Aboriginal reserves uh, and in country towns. So they were working an agenda both to uh, mobilise uh, within the uh, Indigenous communities. I use the term communities, plural, because conditions were very different in different places. But they were also 
aware of uh, the need for uh, broader uh, support from non-Indigenous communities and they, they knew what buttons to press to get people on board uh, for that. Demonstrations being one part of it, but um, uh, symbolic actions like the, um, the tent embassy and um, higher level policy interventions uh, were another part. They, they really mapped out a very comprehensive idea. And the Black Moratorium demonstration as such was essentially part of, I think, their own autonomous uh, scheme for uh, mobilising at least one section of, of uh, support in the non-Indigenous community, that is uh, largely the uh, left and progressive crowds who had been already mobilised by Vietnam and Springboks. They saw that there as a latent area of support and uh, the organisation of the Black Moratorium was to help solidify that and to spread words about the new land rights agenda uh, to those to those people. As you say, it seems like it was quite an important event as part of the Ten Embassy and other things in putting that issue of land rights solidly on the political agenda. And you know, obviously there was there's been some progress in in that regard and in terms of some of the things that the, the Whitlam government then introduced in terms of um, indigenous self-determination. But you know, we've also seen quite a lot of efforts, you know, more recent decades to roll back some of those things, particularly the issue of, uh, of self-determination. So while obviously a lot was, uh, was won out of these struggles, like there are still some of the issues that seems to me were being raised at the time that are still things that people are having to fight around today as well. Absolutely, of course. And, um, you know, one can say these things go slowly, but my God, they don't have to go this slowly. We, I think, uh, suffered a... a well, in the year 2000, you will remember, or some people will remember, the uh, the bridge walks uh, with uh, something well in excess of a quarter of a million people uh, nationwide um, coming out in support of uh, both um, a better deal for Aboriginals generally, but also in, in recognition of the, uh, the crimes committed against the stolen generations and the need for a treaty. That was not an explicit part of the, the bridge walk. Um, agenda, but it was it was there. It was latent, and the support was there for it. In the following um, years, we had a very concerted attack by the then Howard government uh, to try and undermine the the, the uh, social basis for that um, that kind of expression of support for Aboriginal rights. That took its toll, but uh, things uh, did still survive in that period, and. Um, the uh, the legal processes that were going on with the Mabo uh, decisions and legislation provided a, a spark for uh, people to mobilise around. But it was a losing struggle again in that period, so we went backwards, no doubt about that. And, of course, things like native title don't answer all the questions in terms of land rights. They're, they're one mechanism uh, among many. But we're seeing now with the, uh, the Uluru Statement um, and it's quite simple, straightforward um, uh, process uh, for how it uh, wants to proceed, both in terms of establishing an Aboriginal voice, but also entering into a, a real process of truth-telling and um, uh, constitutional and legislative reform. You know, there's, there's a new basis there. What I would say is that um, non-Indigenous Australia has, despite best efforts by many people over many years and and with some gains represented, we have failed to build a permanent sort of standing level of mobilisation in support of Aboriginal rights. 
there's been surges of it, um, and um, the period in 1972 around the 10 embassy in the Black Moratorium was one of those. Uh, the period around the bridge walks in 2000 was another. Uh, in 1988, in between, with the bicentennial demonstrations, there'd been another. But each time, uh, non-Indigenous Australia tends to start its mobilisation from scratch rather than having a standing level of consciousness and organisation in support of Aboriginal rights. And one of the things we've got to do, uh, I think, is to establish more continuity of activity and uh, a more... Um, continuous process of support.